from the Alaska Airline Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make them like us. We're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. We got This is the Blitz at 6. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Monday, August 3rd. Yes, August. Already got to get used to saying that ahead in this hour. Jam-packed hour. Mariners, unfortunately, losing to Oakland. Another 3-2 game after Saturday's loss, but falling by one run yesterday. The good news is Kyle Lewis continuing to do Kyle Lewis-type things. Bashing a home run in that game to extend his hitting streak to start the season to 10 games. Yeah, not bad. Not bad for K. Wu. Ahead in this hour, we'll discuss, we'll hear from Scott Service, Kendall Graveman just having a rough outing against his former team. Looked good early on, but just not as free and easy as he was first time out on the mound. Also, big news in the Pac-12, a group of Pac-12 football players from multiple schools penning a letter in the Players' Tribune in which they said they might opt out of fall camp and game participation unless certain demands are met, including some huge ones surrounding safety protocols, safety regulations, and concerns for COVID-19. We'll discuss that. Also, baseball still six teams uh, not playing over the weekend because of COVID-19. Concerns and positive tests, and they face a big challenge in terms of completing their season. We'll hear from the experts. We also had basketball. We had hockey over the weekend. I felt spoiled turning between all of those options, but it's all ahead in this hour right now. Let's get to your headlines. Here's the stretch. There goes long to third pitch on the way and a swing and a miss by Nola. Foul tip into the glove of the catcher, Allen. He hangs onto it for strike three, and the ball game is over. The Oakland A's hang on and win it this afternoon. A final score of 3-2, to two. Liam Hendricks a save by striking out the side here in the bottom of the ninth, and the Mariners leave the tie and run aboard in scoring position. The Athletics beat the Mariners 3-2 to two on Sunday. Scott Service recapping Sunday's game. Yeah, well, a lot of pitching out there again today. Um, you know, we, we've been shut down offensively here the last couple nights, and uh, you know, certainly Oakland's got a, a veteran bullpen, and, and they've uh, made big pitches at the end of the game when we – We've had some traffic out there. On the, on the flip side, I thought, uh, you know, Graveman um, really battled today. Um, didn't feel 100%. Kind of got a little bit of a neck issue he was dealing with. So, um, you know, it's a game of inches. He gets a little slow, slow roller by Simeon and bang, bang, safe at first. So he was at, he was, the tank was empty. So uh, going to Miz there. And, again, got young guys putting them in situations. Um, and, and they're learning, uh, you know, and he made a mistake. Kind of like last night's ball game, kind of came down to, to one pitch. But uh, we're playing good baseball, you know, and, and that's that's the key with this group is, you know, we're going to stay upbeat, positive, and we're learning along the way. You know, need some big hits and runners in scoring position, which is what we were getting. Um, we were winning a few of those ball games, but again, we're right there, very competitive. Just a, a pitch or a, a big big knock away from from getting back on top. So, uh, not a lot of offense today. Again, Kyle Lewis, uh, you know, with, with a bomb. Um, but other than that, it, it was a it was a struggle offensively. Scott Service on the game yesterday. Graveman ended up going four and two thirds innings, three hits, 
two earned runs, two walks, and three Ks against his former team. The Mariners actually took a 1-0 lead on Daniel Vogelbach's hard-fought RBI single, a great at-bat for Vogel. The stretch and the 3-2 to Vogel, swinging a line drive, base hit, into the gap in right center field. More running third, he'll score. Up with the ball is Laureano, the throw to second. Daniel Vogelback with his first RBI of the 2020 season hit a frozen rope into the gap in right center field, scoring Dylan Moore. The Mariners have a 1-0 lead here in the bottom of the first inning. The A's ended up taking that lead, though, and Ramon Laureano's two-out home run happened in the top of the fifth. Uh, that made it 3-1 Oakland. Snapped a string of 23 and a third innings by Mariners starters without allowing an earned run and helping the A's win their second game in a row after a three-game losing streak for them. How about another positive for the M's, though? Mariners rookie Kyle Lewis hitting his third home run of the season and made it 3-2 in the eighth. The 0-1. Swing and a high fly ball deep into the gap in left center field. Laureano going back, looking up, and goodbye baseball, and that's the way to extend your hitting streak to 10 games. Kyle Lewis way out of here beyond the Mariners' bullpen in left center field. His third home run of the season. It's now a one-run ball game. It's the A's three and the Mariners two. Holy smokes, Kyle crunched that pitch from Use Merrill Petit. Yeah, not bad. Now has hit safely in all 10 games, extending that hitting streak 420 feet. Nothing cheap about that solo home run to left center yesterday. So congrats to Kyle uh, yesterday, and I'm sure going to keep it going here for a while. Up next for the M's, it will be lefty Justice Sheffield on the mound making his second start of the season. Some big news yesterday, a group of Pac-12 football players from multiple member schools penning a letter to the Players' Tribune in which they threatened to opt out of fall camp and game participation unless certain demands were met. Demands surrounding safety and health protocols for COVID-19, but also concerns over racial justice for college athletes and also how how revenue is distributed. So some financial concerns as well. The letter was signed by players of the Pac-12 and uses the hashtag, hashtag we are united to explain the group's concerns. They wrote, quote, because NCAA sports exploit college athletes physically, economically and academically and also disproportionately harm black college athletes. Hashtag we are united. Players from different member schools began organizing the effort a little more than a month ago via Zoom calls. According to ESPN's report, the players on those calls then uh, using word of mouth, spreading word to their teammates. And according to ESPN, hundreds of Pac-12 football players have now joined the effort. The athletes are asking the conference to form a permanent civic engagement task force to address social injustice issues, as well as an annual Pac-12 Black College Athlete Summit with at least three athletes from every school in the conference. In addition, the letter also says the group wants the conference to direct 2% of the conference revenue to support financial aid for low-income black students, community initiatives, and development programs for college athletes on campus. Uh, Ramogi Huma, who is the founder of College Athlete Advocacy Group called the National Collegiate Players Association, and he said that his organization helped provide information about current health and safety concerns and other support while the Pac-12 players organized. So it was somewhat of a resource for these players as they put this letter together. He said players reached out to him a little more than a month ago because they didn't feel safe. There wasn't enough being done to ensure their health and safety for returning to the campus amid the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. 
The athletes say they are being asked to play college sports in that pandemic without transparency, without guarantees for their safety, and without the ability to secure representation while also being asked to sign uh, documents that could serve as liability waivers for the individual schools. Student athletes also want an option to uh, opt out of play during the pandemic without losing eligibility or a spot on the team. They also want to prohibit any of those potential COVID-19 agreements that waive liability and player-approved health and safety standards enforced by a third party selected by the players. The group is also asking Conference Commissioner Larry Scott, administrators and coaches to, quote, drastically reduce excessive pay and end performance bonuses in order to help preserve existing sports. In addition to those financial requests, the student athletes are demanding guaranteed medical expense coverage for six years after their college eligibility ends. The group is asking the Pac-12 to distribute 50% of each sports conference revenue evenly among athletes in their respective sports to give six-year athletic scholarships and for the ability to transfer one time with impunity. Uh, Puma, who helped and was a resource for a lot of these players, said he's aware, the players are aware, that if the Pac-12 actually met their demands, that that would end up meaning the conference would not be eligible to participate in NCAA-sanctioned competitions or championships. But a lot of discussion surrounding that anyway, as a lot of conferences, Power Five even, exploring their ability to operate independently of the NCAA and the model there being, at least at the very least, broken. The demands were released on Sunday. The Pac-12 said in a statement Saturday that it had yet to hear from the group, um, but now obviously changed. The following players identified themselves as being among those who have threatened to opt out of fall camp and game participation if their demands not met by the Pac-12. Several different players uh, from Cal, but also UCLA, Stanford, Oregon, Oregon State, Arizona, Arizona State represented on that list, as well as Dallas Hobbs, D-lineman for Washington State, Ty Jones, wide receiver at Washington, and Joe Tryon, linebacker at Washington. Among the players, two listed are uh, is Oregon safety Javon Holland, who's an All-American and potential first-round pick in next year's NFL draft. And then, as we mentioned, uh, locally, we know some of those names, including Washington star linebacker Joe Tryon. He led the Huskies with 12 and a half tackles for a loss and eight sacks in 2019. Meanwhile, Washington cornerback Elijah Bolden, he also had some thoughts. He wrote in a tweet Sunday saying that he fully supports the sentiment of the boycott and agrees with most of the demands, but also said there are some of the demands that seem unrealistic and far-fetched given, quote, the context of our unique situation, COVID, financial restrictions, time, etc. So he had a really thoughtful statement that he put out on Twitter as well and asked uh, people to consider both sides of the argument. He said, quote, see both sides and remember the situation isn't binary. Dallas Hobbs, a defensive lineman for Washington State, he was a representative there. He told ESPN that players still want to play but are looking for solutions. So coming up next on the Blitz, we'll hear from Dallas Hobbs and some of his thoughts. He actually spoke with ESPN Radio. We'll also discuss uh, Devin McCourty with the Patriots upset about the NFL moving up the potential opt-out deadline. What could be the implications for that? It's next on the Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Monday, August 3rd. 
started off the hour by discussing the letter that several Pac-12 players penned and wrote to the Players' Tribune over the weekend. We actually got to hear from one of those players, at least one of them, to identify himself. That would be Dallas Hobbs, Washington State defensive lineman, and he spoke uh, with uh, with ESPN Radio, first of all, on how everything started with the statement. This whole thing kind of started out with just a lot of players um, just talking to their friends and voicing their concerns. And that kind of spread out to uh, more people. And then we started getting on Zoom calls. And it was kind of just everyone kind of just started out as like an area we could all talk and like voice our concerns. And then that's when it slowly came to mind that we should start drafting up something. COVID is our main concern. But just because of the COVID situation, it brought to light a lot of the other issues. And we were like, we might as well just put everything in it now just because this is our time. It's like, why? Why not include stuff? Why not put it all in there? And that's just really what we decided to do, and that's how it really came about. Did reiterate that the main focus for for the players was health and safety standards surrounding COVID-19. We really just want to put the power in our hands, you know, and just hopefully get our demands met, you know. It will take some time, especially to get most of them, but really our main focus is that COVID, you know. We want, we want the, in health, the enforced health and safety standards just because it's not uniform to all all um, universities around the Pac-12. You know, it's it's not it's not enforced correctly all around. So we just kind of want that to be the main concern, and everything else, like I said, will fall in behind. Dallas Hobbs, though, on what they do want to do with the revenue, because they asked and requested that a certain percentage of revenue be redirected. It would really help bring up a lot of the families that are struggling. You know, and that's kind of what we're talking about for the exploitation and the racial injustice that's happening just because there's so much that we could funnel into other things other programs um after school programs um sports camps and stuff like that that we could really use this money and push programs to better a lot of those areas not just black but um other minorities you know pacific islanders i've heard that and just everyone that is in the sport you know that is coming from those lower income homes also, Dallas Hobbs, WSU D lineman, um, talking about how the stipends that football players and other athletes get um, are that they're grateful for are great, but they aren't enough in a lot of instances. We do get a stipend that we're grateful for. A lot of those kids and athletes send that money back to their family. Like they pay whatever they can with rent and then have to use the rest of that money and give it up to their families, you know? So we're just trying to help people. Um, get out of the situation there and, and a lot of that um, percentage of money could help out a whole lot and make a big difference. Also, a lot of commentary on this around ESPN yesterday, Bomani Jones of uh, the right time uh, saying the Pac-12 can get what it asked for if they are willing to follow through on what they threatened, which would be opting out. The question becomes how seriously the Pac-12 believes that this is. Because right now, this is during voluntary workouts. They're talking about boycotting actual training camp, which I believe starts either the 16th or the 17th of August. So we got two weeks here. Does the Pac-12 intend to legitimately engage these players? Now, they don't have to, right? They can play a game of chicken on this. What I think the Pac-12 has to keep in mind as they do this is there seem to be hundreds of players who are involved in this. Now, are there hundreds of players that are willing to go to the wall? I don't have a great answer to that. But let's just say 75 players in the Pac-12 decide to go to the wall. 75 scholarship players decide to go to the wall. That is more than six per team. 
that greatly affects your ability to put together a football team. Peter Burns from Best Week Ever also talking yesterday about how endowments work and saying that because of some of the stipulations and regulations surrounding them, uh, Pac-12 players might not understand what they're requesting. He also talked about the request for coaches and certain personnel to drastically lower their salaries. Uh, He said that the ask for fair market value for players, it's not really fair if you ask for limitation of fair market value on coaches and executives. Then I want to go forward and say Larry Scott, who is the commissioner of the Pac-12, administrators and coaches who voluntarily and drastically reduced their excessive pay. So let me get this right. Players now in the Pac-12, according to this, they want their free market rights to make as much money as they want off endorsements. They don't want any guardrails. They want to be able to say, let the market determine our worth. But they don't want the administrators, the athletic departments, the coaches to be able to do the same thing. I'm not quite sure if you can have it both ways. And yet, again, how did you not think this through? If later in this document, if you're saying, I need name, image, likeness rights, I need all this money, I need this. I'm not disagreeing that the college athletes should get paid name, image, image, and likeness rights, right? But how are you going to speak out of one side of your mouth and go, well, these guys are waking, the market's paying them way too much money. We need to limit that. But then complain, someone's trying to limit how much you're going to make in name, image, and likeness. You, you just can't have both ways. Myron Metcalf, though, yesterday on ESPN Radio saying that at the heart of this, though, this isn't about fair market value. we got to stay away as broadcasters and reporters from giving these company lines that support these administrators. I mean, to me, at the end of the day, Larry Scott makes a ton of money. These coaches make a ton of money. This isn't about fair market value because the players have not been able to participate. So to suggest that the CEO is making too much money when you feel like you're working for free, that is a conversation to be had. And at the end of the day, why are they asking for name, image, and likeness rights right now? Read that document. They're saying some of our families are struggling, and we feel like we have a a value. Our fair market value would put us in a position, if the rules allowed them to, to help them. Like, that's what they're saying. That's a completely different conversation than Larry Scott making $5 million, head coaches making five, six, seven million dollars strength coaches making a million dollars, uh, millions of dollars going towards brand new facilities and players feeling like they've been left out of that deal. Coming up next on The Blitz, speaking of college football season, still a lot to be worked out surrounding the health and safety protocols, not just in the Pac-12, but everywhere. John Clayton uh, joined by Phil Steele, one of the biggest experts out there. I'm sure we've all read one of Phil Steele's magazines at one time or another, but uh, he joined Phil to chat about the fate of college football season. It's next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6 for the Accrues alongside with you. Still a lot of uncertainty surrounding college football season. Some discussions happened over whether that might take place in the spring. But Phil Steele, whose magazines I'm sure we've all read at one point or another, he joined John Clayton on Friday to discuss hope for the college football season and why he believes that it will still happen in the fall. Your voice, seeing the magazine out, is kind of a reassurance that at least we're going to have some college football this fall. There you go, John. And I'm, I'm a firm believer in it. I think uh, we are going to play fall football. And if it's conference only, I'm a happy guy. In fact, my magazine's based on conference uh, records. 
So uh, nothing really changes in the magazine. Maybe the schedule gets moved around a little bit. But I'm looking forward to having football in the fall. And uh, if it's like I said, if it's conference only, I'm still a happy guy. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, so many of the other conferences, it's going to affect the NFL draft next year. And I'm sure that uh, some of the spring football teams right now may have some players opt out. But it was funny. I was looking at some mock drafts and, uh, you know, the dominance of the power five and one mock draft for three rounds, about uh, 91 of the 96 uh, players that would go in that draft all come from the power five conferences. And I'm sure with the ratings that you have, would that be similar uh, to what you see going? in the top three yes absolutely and you know if if for some reason this thing got moved back to the spring i think it would have a, a huge impact you know take a look at clemson trevor lawrence and travis Etienne. you know would both of course opt out for the nfl draft so but we're not even going to talk about those possibilities john because we're playing football in the fall doggone it well, and that's the thing that I, I wanted to try to get into because, you know, seeing how dominant the Power Five conferences are, it's like, for example, you know, uh, particularly in the SEC, the Alabamas and then over in the ACC with Clemson, maybe LSU, which of those teams in those two conferences have the most talent that, uh, you know, it could be deep enough to carry through three in the first three rounds? Uh you know, I, I think it's they all have the talent there, but they would be missing if they lose those first three round people. They would be missing quite a lot. I mean, you know, Alabama would lose a Dylan Moses, they would lose a Jalen Waddle, Patrick Sertain, uh, Devontae Smith. All these guys would be heading out in the, the first three rounds of the draft. And uh, those are guys that they're counting on this year because generally Alabama loses a lot to the draft. And they replace them with guys that are getting ready for the draft. Well, if you replace two classes like that, whereas Alabama has talent, they would have very very little experience. And I think this year, John, experience is going to play a major role because uh, with the lack of spring practices, you need to have experienced teams. No doubt about it. So right, right now, who would be your five, six best teams in college football coming up this fall? Well, I went way out of the box here, John. I've I got uh, Alabama coming out of the SEC. Really? Ohio State Alabama? Coming, I'm surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ohio State coming out of the Big Ten. How about Clemson out of the ACC and Oklahoma out of the Big 12? Those are my top four. But uh, I will throw a surprise at you, John. I, I don't want to just go with the chalk guys there. And uh, my surprise team this year, my number one surprise team, is Texas A&M. And uh, it goes back to my conversations with Jimbo Fisher. Now, first of all, Last year when I talked to Jimbo, he had uh, two great recruiting classes, so he's already building the talent there. But the one thing that stuck out to me in the conversation was, well, two things did. Number one, the lack of seniors on the squad. They had very few, about four or five seniors. And also the very tough schedule they were about to play. And as it was, Texas A&M took on number one-ranked Clemson, number one-ranked uh, Alabama, and number one-ranked LSU all in the same year. Who plays three number one teams in one year? They also played number four Georgia and number eight Auburn. So five top ten teams. Those were their five losses with the young squad. This year they have 17 returning starters coming back. Kellamon's now a veteran senior, and the group is loaded with seniors. Plus they've got three recruiting classes for Jimbo Fisher and really do go three deep at every position. So it's an experienced squad, which I think is vital this year. It's a third year for Jimbo Fisher, which is when I think new head coaches usually reach their peak. And the schedule gets a lot lighter. They're not going to be playing three number one ranked teams this year. They only may only play one or two top ten teams all season long. 
So with the easier schedule, the experience level they have, I think if you're looking for that surprise team out there that no one's got in their preseason top ten that could contend for a playoff spot, it's Texas A&M. And I actually do have the Aggies ranked number five in my preseason rankings. That was Phil Still on with the Professor John Clayton. That full interview is available at 710sports.com. Just click on the podcast tab, and it's there for you. Also, last week, to close it out on Bob David Moore, Dave and Jim had some discussion on Marquise Blair's role in the Seahawks secondary moving forward and what they'd like to see from the youngsters. I had questions about that. And then I, well, you know me, I always go back and forth and I talk to myself and then I go, well, Jim, you got to remember what Wyman says about that first year. It's really difficult. You're not playing instinctually until the second year when things, you know, you they come easier to you. The game slows down for you. And so maybe that's the case with Marquise Blair. And then Pete didn't really play a lot of his young guys last year for whatever reason, didn't have the trust factor in him. That goes for Ugo Amadi, Marquise Blair. And so I, I factor that in too. But then, you know, that other guy I'm on my other shoulders going, well, wait a minute. Hey, Jim, remember that, that defense? It wasn't like the defense was any great shakes. So why not throw Marquise Blair out there? Would it, would it have been that much worse with, than you had with McDougald? So, yeah, all different kinds of thoughts there. But I'm going to defer to you on this one, Dave Wyman, because uh, <laughs> you're telling me that Marquise Blair is going to be a fit on that defense at some point. And that point will probably be this season. Well, and that'll be one of the questions is how do they, you know, use him? Because, um, you know, and Brandon uh, was saying, Gustafson was saying that, yeah, maybe they'll use a lot of three safety, um, you know, uh, defensive alignments. And that that could be it actually, you know, could could work out. They did a lot of different things last year. I saw the few times where they'd have three D linemen, uh, three linebackers and then nickel. And then, you know, Blair was in there. But, you know, it was interesting to kind of look at his um the sort of pattern of his reps and and when he really played and you could characterize it this way the first five, six games actually he played 12 to 15 snaps something like that but then all of a sudden you know they they ramped it up a little bit in cleveland i think he had six or eight snaps there and then they come home and play baltimore he had 58 sa- uh, snaps in in that game and played 100% of the snaps. So, and he was the number three tackler. He had six tackles that day behind Bobby and KJ, and he broke up a pass. Then the next week they went to Atlanta, and this is the game I looked at. You know, it looked like the first four or five plays he was in on almost every tackle. But he ended up getting 11 tackles in that game and forced a fumble, as I mentioned, which they didn't recover. But, you know, he ended up playing 65 snaps in that game. Then the next week, so you basically have three weeks of just heavy snap load for him against Tampa Bay. He's in there 100% of the time, 76 snaps, and ended up having five tackles in that game. But then after that, you know, the last seven games, maybe 15 snaps for uh, for Marquise Blair, played, uh, I think, nine or ten against Philadelphia in the playoffs. And then Green Bay, he was inactive. So, you know, once they got, and, and this kind of coincided with Diggs, when Diggs, and also later in the season, you saw a lot of Leno Hill. So, again, like you mentioned, Jim, I think the trust factor was really what it was, and especially at safety. I mean, look, you're the last line of defense, and, you know, you're you're supposed to be the guy that keeps everything in front of you, and then if you have somebody back there that doesn't know what they're doing. And I'll say this, he, first of all, I really, I, I think they're, they're kind of, all of a sudden it looks kind of crowded at safety, especially if Marquise Blair takes that, you know, that step. But Ugo Amadi has played there. I really like this Chris Miller kid. And the reason why I bring him up 
is that if you go back a couple of years, I'd say Marquise Blair was probably the hardest hitting safety in all of college football. And then the next year at Baylor, Chris Miller, who they have in as a free agent, and, and I've been saying this, they need a hammer. They need like an Earl Thomas. And I remember seeing Earl, one of his last snaps as a Seahawk, he went flying up and took an, it was Lane Johnson, the guy who wears the dog mask, you know, oh, yeah. big tackle from Philadelphia, and just put him right on his rear end. And I know Earl was more of like a playmaker, but he was a hitter too. And then, you know, of course, Cam Chancellor was the boom in the Legion of Boom. So um, that that's really what they need to get back to. And I, and I see that out of Diggs, see it out of Adams. And the, the, the one hit Quandre Diggs had on a tight end last year, it's a guy named Irv Smith Jr. It was on Monday Night Football, and he came up just flying up and just smoked him. And, you know, he is one of those guys that takes a really direct line, and you see the same thing from Adams, and you see that from Blair, too. Bob and Jim, or sorry, Dave and Jim discussing uh, Marquise Blair, and that was on Bob, Dave, and more. You can listen to them every day from 3 to 7 p.m. right here on 710 Sport and 710 ESPN Seattle. I can talk today. But make sure you also subscribe to their podcast, 710sports.com. Up next on The Blitz, uh, everything from recapping the NBA bubble action over the weekend, a crazy game for the Trailblazers. Also, some news in the NFL Eagles coach, Doug Peterson, testing positive for the coronavirus next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines studio. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 645. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! Orlando Magic forward Jonathan Isaac tore the ACL in his left knee on Sunday. Isaac drove the lane, did a hop step between two defenders against the Kings, but then immediately fell to the floor, untouched, clutching his left knee with just over nine minutes left in the fourth quarter. Unfortunately, even during the Magic's 132-116 win, not a lot of teammates felt like celebrating right there. Uh, It was Isaac's second game back since he hyperextended his left knee on January 1st at Washington. He missed 31 games because of the injury. uh, Left Sunday's game with four points, four rebounds, and two steals in 15 minutes. The Dallas Mavericks officially clinched a playoff spot uh, due to the Memphis Grizzlies' 108-106 loss to the San Antonio Spurs on Sunday afternoon. Hours later, though, Dallas dropping to 0-2 in the NBA bubble with a two-point loss to the Phoenix Suns. Um, And unfortunately for them, they're uh, winless as of yet in the bubble, but still uh, guaranteed by the Grizzlies' loss that the Mavs would finish no lower than 7th in the Western Conference standings. Other scores uh, from yesterday, Nets over the Wizards, 118-110. Crazy game between the Celtics and the Trailblazers, 128-124. The Blazers mounting an epic comeback. A lot of threes drained in that game, but not able to get the win yesterday. I already heard Grizzlies and Spurs, 106-108. Magic over the Kings, 132-116. Rockets over the Bucks, 120-116. And Suns over the Mavericks by two points. A lot of close games that we've seen so far already, uh, and a lot of teams still clearly getting their legs under them during uh, the restart of the league, but still fun to have basketball back on. 
Shohei Otani expressed discomfort in his throwing arm after another abbreviated start on Sunday and was sent in for an MRI. The Los, Angel- Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim still awaiting the results moments after their 11-inning loss to the Houston Astros. Otani failed to record an out in his first start since returning from Tommy John surgery last Sunday and couldn't get out of the second inning seven days later. So unfortunately for him now just awaiting the results of that MRI and uh, Joe Madden uh, also just hoping that he is okay. He thought it was just fatigue from where he was standing, but might be something more serious, unfortunately. Eagles head coach Doug Peterson has tested positive for COVID-19. The team announced last night Peterson convened an unscheduled team meeting Sunday to share the news with his players. Before the team made the announcement, he told the team after receiving a second positive test result confirming the diagnosis, the 52-year-old is asymptomatic, doing well, according to the Eagles, uh, which added that he is in self-quarantine and communicating with the team's medical staff. Good news there. He is believed to have contracted COVID-19 outside of the team's training facility. He needs to have multiple negative tests before he can return to work. He is the second NFL coach, head coach to known to have contracted the COVID-19 coronavirus. In March, New Orleans Saints coach Sean Payton revealed that he had tested positive. New England Patriots safety longtime captain too, Devin McCourty ripping the NFL yesterday for attempting to move the opt-out deadline, uh, the date that players can decide whether or not they want to opt out of the 2020 season. McCourty said in a video conference with reporters, I'm going to play you this one, uh, but a pretty impassioned speech from him. Wait for it. Devin, where are you? Pull it up here. Standing up and speaking up, the last thing I'll say is I think it's an absolute joke that uh, the NFL is changing the opt-out period, mainly because they don't want to continue to see guys opt out. Um, I'm sure they're shocked uh, about how many guys have opted out. Um, But it's the same thing when we sign the CBA sometimes. Some of those things that we think are good, sometimes backfire. You know, we have rookies who are locked in long-term contracts and tagged and tagged. You guys don't think we would love to change that about the CBA, but we can't. That's the point of signing an agreement. So I think it's terrible. I think it's BS that the league has changed that date um, because you guys know Monday will be our first day in the building. So to try to act like guys are making a decision about something other than virtual meetings um, is a joke, but I think it's something that we go through as players and um, when players understand how much power we have, we've seen things change for us. I mean, primarily even with this deal um, with the COVID-19 <laughs> trying to get everything back, we saw some of that strength. So hopefully we'll see how everything turns out come Wednesday if that ends up being the deadline. But I support guys no matter what they decide. Um, but I'm still out here having fun and, and figuring things out. So we'll see how we go. McCourty didn't take any follow-up questions, but as we know, the Patriots have had eight players opt out of the 2020 season, easily an NFL high. Um, McCourty seemed to hint that his decision to play is still in question. He said they're still having fun at this point. But uh, according to Adam Schefter, the league is pushing to move up the deadline from one week after the new collective bargaining agreement side letter is signed. So it's now expected to be sooner, possibly as early as this Wednesday And McCourty believing with many people just uh, getting physically into the building today for them that that's not enough time and puts too much pressure on players to make that decision. As for the season happening itself, head coach of the Rams, Sean McVay, on why he feels more confident about the NFL season happening. I feel a lot better now having a little bit more knowledge 
knowledge and understanding of it's really about the risk mitigation, keeping our ecosystem clear. And I think there's a level of responsibility that coaches, players, really everybody in our building will have outside of the ecosystem to make sure there's a consideration. And it's not just about what you're doing here. It's about understanding how important the ramifications can be if you make bad decisions outside of that with who you're exposed to and educating our guys on how they can risk mitigate, wearing masks, social distancing when appropriate, washing your hands. But with the testing being every day, especially in the first couple weeks, I think you can really establish a, a good ecosystem and identify possible people that if they do test positive, let's get them out of there. Let's allow them to recover and then return when is it ever appropriate based on the parameters that the league has set. So we're still going to play football. I think there's a better understanding of how we apply those risk mitigation practices. Meanwhile, in baseball, they're having some struggles. The St. Louis Cardinals have multiple new positive results for the coronavirus within the organization as a result of Saturday's testing, according to ESPN's Jeff Passan. Sunday's testing is being reportedly fast-tracked so that they can get those results today. The Cardinals said in a statement they don't anticipate any official updates until later today. On Saturday, the team had one player and three staff members test positive, while four members of the organization had inconclusive results. Team President John Mozalak uh, confirming that in a video conference with reporters. The inconclusive test came from one player and three staff members. The Cardinals have since been isolated from each other since arriving in Milwaukee for a three-game weekend series, and all three games have been postponed. We've seen this as a common theme. Six teams, six of 30, not playing over the weekend because of either positive results or uh, playing teams who came in, who had positive results and a ripple effect having throughout baseball. Uh, we also heard from Rob Manfred to close out the week last week that if players and teams don't get this better under control, that he doesn't believe that they'll be able to finish the season and that teams need to do this. That also sparked some blowback from players themselves, Buster, only on how upset players were with Manfred. The players were furious because as part of his statement to our Carl Ravage, he mentioned the players have to do better, and that really angered the players. They felt like he was finger-pointing. John Lester of the Cubs, for example, responded, I'm paraphrasing here, saying, hey, we're the ones who are taking the risk. But this is at the end of a week of finger-pointing from both sides. We had tweets from David Price, from Anthony Rizzo, calling into question parts of the, the health and safety protocol and whether safety uh, was a priority. I can tell you behind the scenes, Major League Baseball Player Association, conversations all the time, they're working together, but this undercurrent of distrust and suspicion has been there all throughout this process so different than the nba and the nhl honestly it did seem as if he was blaming the players essentially rob manfred saying if they were following protocol if they were doing what they should be doing social distancing and the like uh, that baseball wouldn't have the problems that it does that was very interesting so you say the players are furious and if this season is to continue let's just talk logistics something completely unemotional but it's hard to imagine how are they going to continue this season especially with this compressed schedule Hannah they have to continue to try to plug the loopholes and the weaknesses in the system we saw for example after the Marlins outbreak last week Major League Baseball Player Association agreeing to have a health and safety protocol officer on site to remind players when they weren't following it and this is something as we move forward uh, there are players like Lorenzo Cain who yesterday opted out. I hear from agents, from players, that players are on the fence about whether or not to participate. But there are also a lot of players and a lot of team officials who are feeling like, you know what, we got this. 
We feel like we can work through much in the same way that Rob was talking about yesterday. This can happen if they follow the protocol. One of those players who decided to opt out would be New York Mets. Ioana Cespedes uh, decided to opt out of the 2020 season. And it was a weird unfolding story yesterday because he did so after he did not report to uh, the park in Atlanta for Sunday's game against the Braves, according to the Mets general manager. Uh, Van Brody Van Wagen. Brody Van Wagenen said Cespedes was doing so over COVID-related issues and that the team had not previously known of the possibility that he would opt out. But kind of a weird ending uh, to Cespedes' time in with New York. He missed most of the past two years with a series of leg problems, getting surgery on both heels and then a broken ankle after a fall at his Florida ranch from a reported run-in with a wild boar. Yep, nope, yep, that's a, that's a thing. Aaron Judge homered for the fifth consecutive game Sunday, becoming the first New York Yankees player in 13 years to accomplish the feat. He connected off left-handed reliever Matt Hall in the second inning, sending a three-run drive. Uh, and then also went deep again in the eighth, blasting a two-run shot off Matt Barnes to give the Yankees their final two runs in a 9-7 win over the Red Sox. The previous Yankees hitter to go deep in five straight games was Alex Rodriguez in September 2007. The scary part is Judge says he's not even in full season form yet. Not even quite all there. Well, speaking of home runs that were hit yesterday, uh, Kyle Lewis also hitting his third home run of the season. That's how we'll wrap up the show today. The Mariners unfortunately falling to the A's, but Kyle Lewis extending his hitting streak to start the season to 10 games with this one. The 0 1. Swing and a high fly ball deep into the gap in left center field. Loriano going back, looking up, and goodbye baseball. And that's the way to extend your hitting streak to 10 games. Kyle Lewis. Way out of here, beyond the Mariners' bullpen in left center field. His third home run of the season. It's now a one-run ball game. It's the A's three and the Mariners two. Holy smokes, Kyle crunched that pitch from Yus Merrill Petit. Congratulations to K-Lou. That's a wrap for the hot list in the entire blitz. It's six. Danny Engelon coming away now right here on 710 ESPN Seattle.